Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for the grace you have given to us to be saved. We thank you for the privilege of this season, that Jesus is the reason for the season. So, Father, we pray that you'd be glorified by what we're looking into this evening and that your will would be done within our lives and that, Father, um, you would just simply be glorified and your will would be done. Uh, Arrest our hearts, arrest our minds so that our attentions would be completely captivated by you and by the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have concluded the study on dating, and we are officially done with dating. That's the point. We're done. No more. (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right, so we're going to pick up our study from Ephesians, and we're going to go to chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, it's kind of important to go through the message this evening, especially kind of during this time of the year, because this is one of those time of years, times of the year, in which <laughs> in which grammar fails you, in which, it, you know, there's kind of this sense in which There's kind of more of a recognition and reference to Jesus. There's more of an understanding about Christ. In fact, even in secular workplaces, although they don't play the entirety of songs, uh, Christmas songs or different songs that are normally sung or played this time of year, they, they still reference songs like Joy to the World, The Lord Has Come, and different things like that. So there's, there is kind of an emphasis and a focus still upon Jesus Christ. So it's kind of important to begin to focus in, and even Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, there's really nothing unchristmassy about the message tonight. This is exactly uh, concepts that we would see with reference to Christmas, because Christmas is not just the idea that Jesus came as a baby and there's the announcement of a new child. Christmas is entirely about the hope of salvation, and with reference to Ephesians chapter 4, the hope of being able to live a higher quality and a better way of life than the sinful life that we were living prior to Christ. And Ephesians 4 is definitely going to convey those truths to us. And so if you remember some of the things that we've talked about from the book of Ephesians several, several weeks ago, As we've discussed the origin of salvation from chapter 1, we've seen where salvation comes from. We've seen that God had had predicted it or essentially planned it before time even began, that before the worlds even began, before he even created, he had the specific purpose and intention of saving you, of granting you salvation. And so he had planned even creation with the specific purpose in mind of bringing about a particular people that would become his people, and these people would live in a certain way. That's kind of the twofold aspect of what we've looked at so far in the first three chapters is that there is a plan for salvation, there is the execution of salvation, and then there is the resulting lifestyles that salvation brings. And Ephesians 4 is going to carry that theme, and we've kind of laid out the theology in verses in chapters 1 through 3. We've laid out the doctrine, we've laid out the understanding. That was sort of like the class, and now you're going to go out and live 
what the class was teaching. So I'd encourage you to go back through those three chapters if you're unfamiliar with what has taken place in those chapters or if you're not remembering what we had gone through. And I'll try to bring out points here and there that are essential to go through. But that's basically the idea, is that Ephesians models a twofold division of the book, that here is a theology, here's something you need to know, here's something you need to learn, and then once you have that, once you have that knowledge, live a specific way. And that's a very important concept and a very important topic for an individual within a youth group, because by and large, a youth ministry, or at least a popular youth ministry, we'll call it pop youth ministry, that pop youth ministry is simply not about doctrine or theology by and large, and it keeps producing individuals that are not concerned with Christian living. And in fact, that's why there were statistics and polls and studies that had continuously come out, and um, Josh uh, Josh McDowell had 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 one. <laughs> Josh McDowell had one that came out that basically indicated that kids, about 95% of them from the time they're in a youth group to the time that they're in college, 95% of them stopped being a Christian or stopped living as if they were a Christian or stopped professing like they were a Christian. And I would not say that they fell away from the faith or any of those concepts because genuine salvation is something that a person will not fall away from. So these are individuals that prove that there was no root, there was no solid gospel message within their lives. And as a result of that, because there was no root, because there was no firm foundation in theology, in doctrine, and in the gospel, these are individuals that stopped living as Christians. And we can see from our context in Ephesians that that produces a lower quality of life, that produces a lesser degree of satisfaction within life. And so the purpose this evening, what we're specifically focusing on in the first three, cha- three verses of chapter four, is that you've been given a specific responsibility and ability to match your lifestyle with your profession of faith. You've been given a specific responsibility to match your lifestyle with your profession of faith. One of the salient features of the book of Ephesians that we've been dealing with is essentially the concept that if we profess something, if we claim to be Christians, and yet there's any area of our life whereby which we're not living as a Christian, then we're sinning. And sin is ruin, sin is misery, and that's what makes the Christmas season so glorious and so wonderful is because Christ has come to alleviate and relieve God's people from the ruin and misery of sin. That's what makes this season so great. That's what makes this holiday so wonderful is because of the removal of the ruin and misery of sin. But there is still a lifestyle, there is still a consistency that can exist in the life of a Christian who says that they're a believer to not live as though they're a believer. And this will happen a lot of times when we get together with maybe secular friends that we have, or even if you know we just closed our series on dating and we're trying to pursue a relationship with somebody who's not a Christian And so one of the things that allows us to very easily engage in friendships or in relationships with worldly individuals is to hide the Christianity that we have, is to hide the gospel message and to pretend in certain contexts as if we're not a believer. Because the reality exists that Christ had even taught us within the gospels that he 
because of his stance for holiness, because of his stance for the gospel message, that he was hated, and anybody who follows Christ will be individuals who will receive the same kind of animosity from the world, and indeed the same kind of animosity that can lead ultimately to our death. But the lifestyle that Christ lived is the same kind of lifestyle that Christians have, whereby which they can experience divine joy and divine satisfaction. And so as we're given this responsibility here within the first three verses, we begin to recognize that this responsibility is not something that we're being called to that is a negative thing. Living as a Christian is not something that's a negative thing. Living as a Christian is something that is entirely positive and it is a higher quality of life whereby which even all the areas of our lives can be experienced with higher degrees of satisfaction and joy that God can give so there's several things that this passage of scripture is going to do for us it's going to show us that we've already been called you've already been called to be a Christian There's so much that Ephesians will give in terms of assurance of salvation. And one of the best things to begin to recognize in our first three verses here, and we'll read them here in just a moment, one of the best things to begin to recognize is that the call has already gone out to you. You have heard the gospel message. You have heard the calling of the Holy Spirit. You have been called, if indeed you are a Christian. And so as you read Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, just like you would read Ephesians chapter 1, make that entirely personal. Make this passage of Scripture about you. And so there's a degree of assurance that this passage can give you. Secondly, is that this passage will equip you to fulfill your obligation to live where there is a lifestyle that is in harmony with your profession of faith, where there is a lifestyle that your public life and your private life are matching one another. There is an ability to be able to do that given to you within this text here. You hear the things that are presented within Scripture, never think to yourself, how am I going to accomplish this? In any capacity of Scripture... When you read the Ten Commandments, don't think to yourself, how am I going to fulfill the Ten Commandments? Because the answer is directly supplied to you within the Bible itself. And one of the best means of being able to fulfill God's commandments is God's ability to do them in Jesus Christ. So that if you have Jesus Christ, you have the ability not only to do them, but to be considered as having already done them. That's what it's like to have the life of Christ. That's the calling that will take place within this text here. And then the third thing that we can see is that there is a contextual goal. There is a goal that is given, and it is the goal of unity. One of the things that is a very difficult concept to overcome within a youth ministry is the idea of unity within a youth ministry. This doesn't mean unity in the Bible never means you can't have a group of friends. And that with this particular group of friends, those are the individuals that you would normally prefer to hang out with. And that there seems to be a consistency with your group. It seems to be that's who you are. It's, it's kind of just these people in this group, maybe these people in this group or things like that. That's not the issue ever of unity in the Bible. The issue is, is that when you consider 
anyone within the youth group that you consider them as a better individual than you are. That you consider their needs as more essential than your own. That's the idea of biblical unity. That you see somebody else within the youth group and you love them to the degree in which they're more important than you are. And you acknowledge them as a brother or a sister in Christ. You're not ignoring them. You're not pushing them outside. You're not trying to be negative to them, but that you would rather see yourself uh, on the back burner of life if it meant the success of somebody else within the youth group. And then, of course, as you begin to develop more, as you begin to grow in your Christianity and your maturity, that you would get to the point where that's how it is within the church within a local body of Christ that you have committed yourselves to and ultimately within every believer everywhere. So these concepts that we have laid out as an introduction, these are going to become a little bit clearer as we read our text. So let's jump right in in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so right off the bat, you, you can begin to sense some incredibly strong language, and Paul is definitely one to use strong language to try to grab your attention and to try to reel you in, to try to hook you in, to know that there's something ultimately and utterly important that you need to pay total attention to, and that is your responsibility given in the text. He says in verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. How often do you guys in conversations with one another say, I implore you to go to the movie with me? Do you use the word employ <laughs> every single day, especially when The Hobbit comes out? I'm like, I implore you, go see The Hobbit with me, and thine, and thou, and henceforth, and hitherto. I implore you. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So you sense what we saw there a moment ago, that you have been called. This is a past tense concept. Now here's something that's peculiar. As strong as the word implore is, this is not a biblical command. As strong as the word is, as strong as the sense is within the first verse here, he's not commanding you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But given the fact that the word here means intense strong encouragement coming alongside somebody else and literally lifting them up and putting their arm around you so that you can carry them through. It's as if somebody had a broken leg and you had to try to, had to, try to help them get up out of the place that they're in and get them to a different location. You would literally take them by their side and carry them through here. That's what he's saying here. He's not telling us a command. He's telling us a fact. He's telling us a reality that right now, with the first three verses, this is ultimately what the Apostle Paul is doing for you. He is picking you up out of the crippledness of not walking in a manner worthy of your calling. It's exactly what your life is. If you're an individual who is professing to be a Christian, yet not walking as a Christian, you are crippled. 
In other words, there's places that you can go, there's things that you could be doing, or there's experiences that you could be having, but because of the fact that you are crippled, you need the Apostle Paul to lift you up with the gospel and to carry you through so that you can walk in a manner in which is worthy of your calling here. And so to ignore this intense encouragement, to ignore what is being presented within this passage of Scripture here is exactly the same kind of sin as if you were to ignore a command. The gravity that's at stake here, the risk that you are running in ignoring this encouragement is a lifestyle of sin. And so in that capacity, this this would lead sinful living that would be worse than just simply ignoring one command in and of itself. Because this would be a stumbling block. This would be leading into sinful living, compromised living, living in such a capacity as you are exactly the same as the world around you. This is encouragement that we desperately need. We are, we are starving for this encouragement. We are, we are parched and dehydrated for this kind of encouragement. This is absolutely necessary because no matter who you are, there is always going to be a certain time or a certain area of your life where there is a temptation to not live as a Christian. And here you have a wonderful tool, a wonderful weapon within the arsenal of a believer, the encouragement of the Apostle Paul to help you not live in a manner that is unworthy of your calling. As a Christian, how constantly are you focused on matching your life with your profession of faith? As a Christian, how constantly are you focused on on trying to align your lifestyle with your profession of faith. That's what was so essential about three chapters worth of theology because he's giving you the doctrine. He's giving you the teaching and instructing you of what that profession of faith is all about, what that gospel is all about. It's a very difficult thing for a Christian to answer that question if they don't understand what it means to profess as a Christian. That's why it is the lifestyle of a Christian to study, to take in the Word of God, not just so they can simply be knowledgeable in the Word of God, but so that they can have those tools that answer those questions. What does it look like to be a Christian in a school? What does it look like to be a Christian and be homeschooled? What does it look like to be a Christian amongst a community of believers? What does it look like to be a Christian in a workplace? And we went over a series on dating. What does it look like to be a Christian, godly man in a relationship with somebody? What does it look like to be a Christian, godly woman in a relationship with another guy? What does it look like to be a married Christian? What does it look like to be an elderly Christian? What does it look like to be a widowed Christian? What does it look like to be a single Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian who is walking down the street? What does it look like to be a Christian shopping? What does it look like to be a Christian shopping during the Christmas season? When everybody is crazy and the traffic is ridiculous. I won't take this time to complain. I won't do it. There's a temptation. Really, really strong temptation. (laughs) 
Let's move on. What does it look like to be a Christian? And leave, leave a blank to fill in there with that question. What does it look like to be a Christian in this situation? What does it look like to be a Christian when your parents are telling you to do something? What does it look like to be a Christian when your room is dirty? What does it look like to be a Christian when you're in a sport, in an activity? What does it look like to be a Christian in any way, shape, or form? And especially then, what does it look like to be a Christian when nobody else is around? And that's when the rubber meets the road, when there's this element that exists in the privacy of your life or by which you can, you can engage in activities in your mind even where nobody else has access to those things and has no clue what's going on there except for God. What does it look like? How, how often are you in a position whereby which you are judging a circumstance, you're judging a situation by saying, what is it that I should be doing as a Christian in this situation? How is it that I should be living in the particular circumstances whereby which the reputation of Christ is more important than mine? Whereby the pleasure of Christ is more important than my pleasure. That's that's where you can begin to truly and genuinely understand the status of your walk is when you are relegating your pleasure to the back burner and you are excited about the pleasure of God. God being pleased with how I act. God being pleased with how I behave. God being pleased with what I think given a particular circumstance or a particular situation. That's when you can begin to truly understand where your allegiances lie. That's where you can truly begin to understand if the profession is a deeply rooted profession of faith. You are convinced within your heart of hearts. You are convinced within the very inner recesses of your being that Jesus Christ came to save you and Jesus Christ came to redeem you and sanctify you into a particular kind of lifestyle whereby which there is a worthiness that has to be associated with this lifestyle. How constantly are you focused on the matching of your life with your profession of faith? Notice Paul's motivation here. He gives us a particular motivation by saying to us, not the first time within the context of Ephesians, he says to us that he is a prisoner of the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord implore you so that you could begin to recognize that there is a specific context that Paul exists in to be able to bring you this encouragement. He's not living the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. He doesn't have some kind of condo out in Israel. He's not living on the Mediterranean Sea, enjoying the coastline and just soaking up the rays, writing a letter to each and every one of us saying, ah, mm, y'all should uh, stop messing up in life and should start not messing up even more and um, love the Lord and, man, wish you could see what I'm seeing right now. All right. Uh, gosh, man, I'm just so rich. Who should I pay to send this? Uh, you. You want to make like 300 shekels? All right, here you go. Enjoy. 
This is the Apostle Paul who is literally experiencing imprisonment and he is saying to us and expressing to us that he's ultimately the prisoner of the Lord, but he is expressing the understanding that he is suffering. He is going through intense agony and indeed when he was called, when the Apostle Paul became the Apostle Paul, he had somebody sent to him in order to express to him the degree, the gravity, and the extent of how much he was going to suffer for the sake of the Lord to advance the gospel to us today. The people around him. His entire life, his, his commissioning to the apostolic office, which most people think today it's such a high and wonderful and amazing office and in many ways it absolutely is but you think about it maybe from a Roman Catholic perspective that an apostleship is like an elevated position it's like you look at an apostle and you're like that's a saint that's a holy person they're adding to the treasury of merit by the way that they're living and that's something that can be delegated out to the rest of you guys in order to be able to to benefit your life and save you from the treasury of merit of an apostle which of course is heresy But he was told when he was commissioned, imagine this as a job interview, that you walk into a job interview, you sit down and they're reviewing your qualifications and they're saying, nope, you're not qualified. Nope, you're not qualified. Nope, you're not qualified. You are totally not the right person for this. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and knock you down blind. You're going to not be able to see for a certain period of time. And when you're the time frame when you're going to be able to see, I'm going to send somebody to you and he's going to tell you how terrible this job is going to be for you. Then you can see and then, and then you'll go to cities and they'll, they'll cast you out of the city. They'll stone you to the near brink of death. By the way, you'll be on an island somewhere and you're going to get bit by a poisonous snake. Enjoy. You're going to spend tons of your time in prison. You're going to spend tons of your time being hated. You're going to suffer a great degree in order that the name of your employer would become more valuable and more important than your name. And by the way, you'll be beheaded at the end of the job. That's the commissioning of the Apostle Paul. That he's essentially told, maybe not in those degrees and, and in those uh, revelations of details or different things like that, but from our perspective, we recognize what that really meant. But that's the expression of the commissioning of the Apostle Paul, that he is going to suffer imprisonment, and he is not, repeat, the Apostle Paul is not going to suffer imprisonment and to suffer the things that he goes through in order to produce shallow Christians. That's the motivation of what's being seen here. That the Apostle Paul is going to suffer the extremeness of what he will go through not to produce individuals that are nonchalant about the message that he is proclaiming. He is suffering imprisonment in order to produce Christians who are worthy of their calling, in order to produce individuals who are sold out for Christ if anything, to the same degree and possibly even to outdo the Apostle Paul's sold-outness for Christ. He is suffering imprisonment in order for there to be generations and generations of Christians who are obsessed with the lifestyle of the Gospel and love every single minute of it. Is that you this evening? 
Are you one of those shallow Christians? Are you one of those individuals that is simply okay with a profession of faith and a, a belief that you'll be saved someday, but a complete and total nonchalantness for the lifestyle that this kind of salvation is supposed to produce? What does it mean to be worthy here? He's talking about the difference between a shallow version of Christianity and a sold-out version of Christianity, this worthiness version of Christianity. What does this mean here? It's kind of odd terminology that the Apostle Paul is using because he's basically saying that he implores us, he encourages us to walk as if we deserve the attention of someone or something. That's what it means to be worthy. You're deserving of attention or it's talking about walking in a way in which you show that you have the qualities or the abilities to earn some kind of recognition. And that's really bizarre because we recognize and we understand in the New Testament teaching about that it's not by works, it's not by meriting something, it's not by earning something that you're saved, nor is it even necessarily solely by that that you would be sanctified. <clears throat> Sanctification also kind of couples with the idea of needing to do things to assist your faith and to assist the growth of your faith perhaps, but more so the idea that you're not doing things to hinder sanctification, so there's a degree of responsibility of you that you need to be existing in in order to be sanctified. And that the Holy Spirit willingly allows himself to be grieved by you and willingly allows himself to Engage in moments with you whereby which you are sinning and he is not sovereignly strangling you by the neck telling you stop. That he's willingly not doing that. But in this sense, it's specifically the idea of a responsibility that we have to engage in a lifestyle that shows that we have the qualities of salvation. We have the abilities of salvation and that we have the ability to be recognized as actually being Christian. So here's what we understand that he's not saying. He's not saying to walk in a certain way as if you're supposed to earn your salvation. That has nothing to do with it. That's not the context here. He's not saying to walk in a certain way as if to merit God's favor on you, that by doing this, God is now going to grant you grace, saying, okay, you lived a particular way, I'm going to go ahead and give you some grace now. But I'll hold off on giving you more grace until you merit, until you earn more of my grace. That's not what he's saying here. But what it is saying is that the Bible teaches the existence of a particular lifestyle that ultimately draws God's attention to you, but that matches the exact kind of lifestyle would be demonstrated in a Christian lifestyle. And the comparison that he can make is the lifestyle of Christ. There's a lot of times that we think about the deity of Christ. And we think, well, of course Christ did that because he was God. And in many different contexts, that's absolutely the case. But Christ modeled something for us. Christ lived in a particular way for us so that the life that he lived would be given to us. Living the law perfectly. It's what we would know as, as God imputing the active righteousness of Christ. It was that righteousness that he achieved and accomplished on our behalf by fulfilling the demands that God had set in place of what right living is. So Jesus lived rightly and then gave us the life that he lived so that we could be considered as having lived rightly ourselves. 
And so in that capacity, yes, he relied completely upon the Father. He relied completely upon God as a man, though he didn't stop being God. He did live in such a capacity that is a lifestyle modeled for us that we can strive for, though we can't do in our own strength, but because he already lived it, we can also receive that same quality. In other words, if Jesus did it, it can also be shown within our lives. It's like Galatians 2.20. It's kind of a model verse, kind of a favorite verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, here's, here's my death. Here's my being destroyed in a particular capacity. Here's the end of me. I've been crucified with Christ. And the life... And it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So that it's the faith of Christ that I am utilizing to my advantage in order to be able to live this specific way. And so when Paul talks about a, a lifestyle that is worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ, that is worthy of the calling that we have been given within this context, he is saying there is a specific capacity whereby which you can judge your worthiness. How much do you look like Christ? So how would you do this? Again, we had talked about earlier that there is an, an ability to be able to do this. And we can see this. Again, we can mimic and match and, and see the life that Jesus had lived and by faith be able to live that same kind of life. And, and, and we can grow to be more like him and all those different things are existing. But Philippians 2, 5 through 7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. In other words, it was through humility that Jesus lived on this earth. And the context would even specifically show a throwback to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 when it talks about that in verse 2, with all humility, this is how you can live. And the reason why this would be a comparison to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 is because he just spent an abnormal amount of time talking about how amazing God is for what he has done in your life. Verse 1 of Isaiah 66, this will be a great tool for you. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? If you don't sense, if you don't feel a total utter creatureliness by what is expressed in verse 1 of Isaiah 66, then you need to reread it until the gravity hits you. For God, His throne is so immeasurable that it is indeed heaven itself. That God is sitting on heaven. This is a big God. This is an immense God. This is a God whose limits cannot be found or searched out. And He sits on heaven and when he desires to put his feet up on something, it is indeed the very earth itself. If you think about any time where you're sitting there and, and you kick up your feet on an ottoman or something in front of you, imagine that being the earth. Don't imagine yourself being God with your feet on it. 
But imagine that being the earth and imagine the picture that's created of a God so big and so majestic that his feet are on something the size of the earth. And indeed, these are just simply expressions. God is actually immeasurably bigger than this, more immense than that. And then he says, if you tried to build him a house, you tried to build him a place to dwell, that there is no ability for you as a finite creature, no matter how many people you get on your team or how many people you try to recruit to build a place adequate enough for God to live. And yet here's what he says in verse two, my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So now you have the issue of him being creator as well. But he says, I will look to this one. I will look to this kind of person. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The word there for contrite means dust or like the dirt on the side of a road. I'm looking for somebody who is as low and maybe even as trampled on as dirt on a road. That's the kind of person who catches God's attention ever think about that especially just closing the study on dating where the environment and the context of dating is usually about trying to attract somebody else right everybody spends their time doing their hair up nicely everybody takes like the greatest poses for facebook and giving their selfies and it's like you know they got all these like poses and stuff that they do i don't know what you call these things but they're super awkward You know, especially like I I look through Facebook, through a news feed every once in a while, and it's like you've got these like girls, especially like even in former youth groups. And it's like they have these like poses where they've like put on abnormal amounts of makeup. Their hair is done up more than movie stars. And they're in a bathroom because they need a mirror a lot of times. And so it's just like, bam. And it's like you're trying to attract somebody with that. There's no doubt what you're trying to do. I mean, nobody puts up a, well, some people do, but the average person puts a, does not put up a picture on Facebook as to show themselves as being unattractive. Like I said, some people do. Some people do unintentionally. It just happens. It's, it's not about looks. There's a, there's a quality on the inside that exists in people. It's not always an issue of looks. But that... Did I really, you guys probably have like the worst mental image of me going like this now. I apologize. Nobody should have that stuck in their mind. Nobody. But they, they're doing that for the specific purpose of being attractive, of catching people's attention. And even if it's not to try to find somebody to, to be your, your next boyfriend or your next girlfriend, and of course... Guys within this room, so help me, I will literally freeze paintballs and paintball your house repeatedly if you take the shirtless picture of you flexing as hard as you possibly can in the bathroom and you're like, that's what's, that's what's up. That's what's up. Check it out. And then you're like, you're like crawling other like chicks' webs, you know, Facebook pages, and you're like, "Hey, what's up, girl? Hey, what's up? Check it out." And you're like, "It's the picture. It's the picture. That's where it's at." She'll be she'll be friending me in no time. If you do one of those, I will literally come to your house for a pleasant visit, and there may or may not be the presence of a pillow sack with 
bars of soap in it. <laughs> and these may or may not make contact with you. I can't promise you what's happening. <laughs> it's not a threat. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen when those things... Yeah, when me, you, and a bag full of batteries even just start hanging out. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Especially with the haunting image of you trying to look like you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. But without the amount of steroids. It's just not going to do it. It's, it's awkward. I don't, and never forget that I'm your friend on Facebook, even if you go astray and you're like wandering off because I don't want to see that stuff. <laughs> it's super awkward to like post those things, knowing that your former youth pastor is one of your friends and he's going to see these things. Ladies, think about that. Just saying, just saying. It's just like the amount of traffic that there is right now, resisting the temptation <laughs> to keep going. So how do you do this? How do you, how do you avoid taking stupid selfies on Facebook? As just one pleasant application of this message in a, in a sea of applicable contexts. The Christian who spends his or her time dwelling on contexts like Isaiah 66, whereby God is being shown to be bigger and bigger, the Christian who does that will have a lifestyle of positive result. As you increase your understanding of the magnificence, the magnanimousness, and the majesty of God, you cannot help but sense a creatureliness and a state of humility. I mean, you imagine that. If you're out in the wilderness and a grizzly bear is attacking you, that's, that's where it gets real and you're about to get mauled. And that's when you are curled up in a ball in a fetal position, hoping to God that this bear does not eat you. But if we're talking about that right now, it's, not, it's nothing that is scary. I mean, we might think to ourselves and imagine and picture it and say, yes, that's probably scary. But if I just say, guys, there's a grizzly bear coming, I'm just simply talking to you about it and nobody, even though there's a weird noise that was just had, <laughs> and you don't see an actual grizzly coming into the room, there's nobody that's going to fear that grizzly until you take in more of that grizzly. I mean, a lot of times it's fun to watch some kind of a nature program and you're seeing Kodiak bears. You're seeing these huge, monstrous bears. And when you see the size of their paw in comparison to human beings, it starts to create a picture for you. You will not have an understanding of why it is that you should fear God, why it is that you should love God, why it is that you should be like God, unless you stand in His presence in the Word of God and see how spectacular He actually is. Much of your life will experience significant problems because of the lack of knowledge of God that you have. One of the prophets in the Old Testament even said that my people are undone. They're ruined, they're destroyed, they're dismayed, they are depressed, they are sad, they are in utter terror and problems for lack of knowledge. Sit in the presence of God and experience these ultimate realities. Like Job uh, 38, when God is saying, 
I'm going to answer you. You're going to respond to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That was a sense in which Job, who was already in a suffering and lowly state, any shred of pride left in Job's heart is completely decimated by God appearing to him in a whirlwind and showing him how insignificant he actually is in the scheme of things. Hebrews even talks to us this way, quoting an Old Testament passage saying, what is man that God would even think about him? It's the understanding of humility here. Contrite in spirit, trembling at the word of God. That's literally to quake because of the extremeness of what you're reading. It's to shake and be in terror of what is being spoken of within the passages that you're reading. And there's one way to avoid doing that, and it's pride. It's sin. That's how you can begin to suppress the knowledge of God. That's how you can suppress the immensity of God is to heap onto yourself sin and to try to convince yourself that he's not God and that you are. And this is how you avoid living a lifestyle that is quality here. Supposed to do it with gentleness and with patience. Now, this is the idea of use gentleness and combine patience with gentleness. Plug those two together and make that a a unified concept here. And so it's humility and gentleness and then with gentleness have an attitude of patience with others that is an uber tolerant attitude. Now we need to talk about what tolerance is because that word is not used today in how it's understood biblically. The idea of tolerance is to endure someone. It's to endure someone. That's a particularly difficult concept for youth ministries because for whatever reason it is, actually that's, that's a particularly difficult concept for anybody. To endure somebody else means that if they're in the room and they're talking with you and they are super annoying and their personality bothers you or they're homeless and they stink and they're asking you for uncomfortable concepts such as money or such as food or different things like that, they need the the gospel, by the way. And you're experiencing these relationships or just simply somebody else within the youth group who bothers you they don't, they don't seem as cool as your standard of cool. They don't seem as cool as the, the people that you would normally associate, associate yourself with, or they're not in the same genre of lifestyle that you're in. You're an athlete or you're a super intelligent kid or whatever it is. They're not in the same kind of understanding, the same stereotype that you are, that if you are enduring them, if you're tolerating them, it means no matter how much they prick you, how much they bug you, how much they bother you, how much it is a total and utter inconvenient to be around them, you still endure them with a particular attitude of love. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in Love. That's what it's like to walk worthy of your calling. That's, in other words, that's what a Christian looks like. 
It's not somebody who compromises on sin. That's what the understanding of tolerance is today. That in order to tolerate somebody who's a homosexual, in order to tolerate somebody who is a a drunkard or, or whoever it is in whatever particular sin that there is, in order to tolerate them, you have to accept them and you have to agree with their lifestyle even if it's unbiblical or even if it's biblically sin. That's not what a Christian does. But a Christian will endure somebody... They won't endure them hatefully. They won't endure them cruelly, but they will endure them. And in other words, and the idea in the context is, is that you would endure them. You would be waiting for the opportunity when the things that they are doing or the issues that they are bothering you with pass. You stick it through until the point in which you see those things that are significantly problematic are no longer there. Now, that doesn't mean that you stay in a sinful relationship. That doesn't mean that you keep doing things wrong. Because again, tolerance does not mean avoid the biblical definitions of sin and righteousness. But it does mean that you continue to be loving, you continue to be humble, you continue to be holy, you continue to be godly, you continue to be loving and preaching the gospel for somebody, and you endure until they become a Christian or they go away. Or in a relationship with another individual, you endure until they become more like Christ. Or if they're existing in sin, that they're put under church discipline and their sin is officially dealt with. You endure them to the nth degree, maintaining your principles as a Christian, walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling. You're waiting for something in which their sin is dealt with in some way, shape, or form. 